Good morning, church. Uh, if you're following along with us, you can go to open up your Bibles to John chapter 16. Uh, we have been working through this, uh, this final conversation that Jesus has with his disciples leading up to the crucifixion. And in a way, we bring it to a close this morning because this is the last of uh, him teaching them in a um, more of a conversation setting, even though he's going to pray over them. Still teaching them through the prayer, but pray over them in the, in the next chapter. And so um, we are continuing, and we're going to bring that part a little bit to a close, but we'll refer back to some of what he's just discussed as well. Because even though it's, to us, it's week after week, and there's many days in between, and here, it's moments. <laughs> it's minutes as this is transpiring, and he's just said one thing, and they're responding to something that he had just said, even though for us it may be two or three weeks. And so um, we're taking a look at John chapter 16 this morning as we look at four things that the church overcomes through Jesus. You see, in our culture, and I imagine many of us in this room, we like stories of overcoming. We like hero stories. We like hearing about how someone um, was fighting to overcome a difficulty or an injury or whatever it is in their life. We like to hear that they struggled well through it and made it out on the other side. And yet, that's not the story that we read in Scripture of our lives. We're not actually the heroes of our lives at all. Jesus is the hero of the story. And we overcome the world through him. And so there is a difference between those things. And so as we look at this overcoming of these four things, this is all based on Jesus and not based on just us doing better or being smarter or working harder. It has to do with the fact that we overcome through Jesus. And so we're going to look at John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33 this morning. We're going to read through it all, um, all at once here at the beginning, and then we'll break it down. And so take a look, John chapter 16, verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you come from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So you can see there's many things he says here, but we're gonna break it down into four, into four sections, four different things that are overcome within the church. The first one in verse 25, overcoming the confusing message. Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. This is not because Jesus was doing a poor job (laughs) of explaining things. He was doing a perfect job of explaining things and teaching things, and yet the disciples were regularly confused. It just happened in the previous section, and we'll see their response and, and talk about how it connects in a minute. 
But Jesus walking along saying, well, in a little while, this is gonna happen. And then in another little while, there's gonna be this. And then in a little while, this, a little while, that. And back in the pack, or so, we don't know how far they are to Jesus, but amongst themselves, they start to mutter. And they say, what is he talking about? I don't understand what he means by in a little while. And they're talking amongst themselves. And it's not the only time that we see the disciples confused about the teachings of Jesus. So he says, I'm, I've, speak, I've spoken to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly in a little while. You know, if you've ever tried to explain concepts to children, I think you understand a little bit of what's going on here. In, in many ways, there's a, there's a comparison between Jesus being the, the father of the group and then the disciples responding like our children do today. You know, I never really, I didn't know what to expect entirely when I became a father, obviously, but one thing I wasn't prepared for was how I had to teach the kids how to do everything. Those little people don't know, they have no clue. They have no idea what to do. They are completely helpless. I mean, you put food in their mouth and they spit it out. And you're like, don't you want to eat? They're starving and they won't, and they spit it out because they literally don't know how to eat food. It's so strange to me. And then, you know, you try to explain, you know, concepts and different things. And, you know, we've got two little girls. Um, one is, uh, Eva's seven years old and Atlanta's four years old. And, uh, you know, we, we've learned a lot of things. It's been quite an adventure trying to explain things to them and teach them along the way. And I remember one of the times, it's been a couple of years ago now, that our oldest was having um, a nightmare at night. And she came into our room and woke up my wife. I don't know how I, I, that worked out in our family, but I've been very fortunate that in the middle of the night, they wake up her every single time. It's awesome. She, she wins on the other end, though, because when it's time to get up, when they get out of the room and it's okay, because we have a, a, an alarm clock in there that turns green when they can actually walk out of the room, and if they've actually abided by that rule, then they walk out, and they always come to my side of the bed. And we didn't tell them to do that. They just decided that on their own. If it's the middle of the night, they go to her. If it's in the morning, it's time to get up, they come to me if I'm not already out of bed, which normally I'm already downstairs. But in the middle of the night, she comes into the room and she asks, uh, she tells my wife, hey, I'm having a nightmare. And my wife starts to explain to her, okay, well, you know, sweetheart, one of the things you can do when you're having a scary dream is you can pray to God and ask him to help you through this, right? Help him with, help you with the fear, help you go back to sleep. And my daughter looked at her kind of inquisitively and said, well, I don't want to wake him up. How do you respond to that? <laughs> right? My wife, in the best of her ability, at like what was probably three o'clock in the morning, said, Well, sweetheart, you're not going to, you know, no, he, God doesn't sleep like we do. You know, he's always there. He's always, you know, he's always listening. He's always caring for us. You're not going to wake him up. You don't have to worry about that. That's not how it works. And then my daughter has a moment where she's my child <clears throat> and says, he was in the boat and the disciples were freaking out and they woke him up. <laughs> he was sleeping. What do you mean he doesn't sleep? <laughs> I don't know how you respond to that at three o'clock in the morning. You laugh and you say, get back in bed. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's an adventure walking through some of those things, you know, and they, I mean, they don't get sarcasm until like middle school. 
right? I've been doing student ministry for a long time. And they, uh, uh, <laughs> and middle schoolers don't get sarcasm. And sometimes I have the, the most fun with that because they're so literal and they just expect that they believe you and stuff. And uh, like the, the, there, were, there were holes in the ceiling of um, the worship center in our previous church. And I convinced some of the middle school girls that there were snipers up and that's the holes that they look through and stuff. And they were just like, what? Like, that's sarcasm. Come on, right? We were driving, I was driving the girls home this past Wednesday night and it was like 9.30 at night or whatever it was when we were finally heading home and my wife calls after getting done with practice and she says, hey, have you left the church yet? I said, yeah, I left the church. She goes, you going home? <clears throat> Y'all pray for my wife because my response was, uh, no, we're headed to the beach. <laughs> now she's been married to me for almost 15 years and so she just goes, yeah, yeah, I'll see you at home. But I hung up and my daughter goes, are we going to the beach? Why did you say we were going to the beach? Right? My wife knew exactly what I was saying. I was using a figure of speech that, was, that communicated that, but my daughter had no idea. She was completely lost. My, I remember growing up when I was a kid, because this is nothing new, and my dad would, I asked my dad, hey, we're going to do something, he'd go, well, Lord willing, the creek don't rise. <laughs> what creek? What creek are we measuring and trying to figure out if it rises, we go, or if it doesn't rise, we go? I don't understand. No, no clue, no clue, right? And so there was, this was what was happening in the lives of the disciples here where Jesus was explained to the, uh, explaining to them the things of the Father and the things of him and how this was working, and they were just confused. And yet he's saying that's, that's only gonna be going on for a little while because in a little while I'm gonna be speaking to you more plainly and more clearly. And I think it's referring to two different things here. Uh, first off, I think it's referring to the fact that Jesus is actually going to communicate differently with them after the resurrection. Now, we don't have total access to everything that he taught them before and everything he taught them after, and we can make these correlations and, and compare and all that. But I do think um, what we refer to as the road to Emmaus was an example of it. If you look in your Bible in Luke chapter 24, you see that Jesus walked beside some of his disciples. They didn't realize it was him at the time, but he explained to them about who he was. In fact, it says... Verse 25 in Luke, Luke 24, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think that's an example of him speaking in a, in a little bit of a different manner, a little bit more of a plain manner. But I think it's also referring to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that in depth two weeks ago, and we're not going to go into it in depth again today, but if you want to go back and listen to the message from a couple weeks ago, if, you're, if it really interests you, um, then you can, uh, you can go see that, where Jesus is explaining that part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to be revealing truth and leading the disciples into truth. Not truth that's beyond Jesus or after Jesus, but the truth that is aligned in Jesus, a further understanding and, and um, a level of understanding that they can write this after being confused about most of it when it happened. They understood more plainly that, that as the Holy Spirit is speaking the words of Jesus through to his disciples, that there is a communication that's changed. And so the church overcomes the confusing message through Jesus. Secondly, overcoming the closed curtain Verses 26 through 28, in that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. See, overcoming the closed curtain because a, the whole paradigm shifts 
at the resurrection, or at the crucifixion. That up until this time, if you were to ask the Jews, you know, how do you speak to God? How do you get to God? They would appeal to some kind of intermediary, whether it was Moses or Aaron or the um, prophets or the priests. There was always this intermediary between them and God. They would come, they would speak to the, um, speak to the intermediary, the intermediary would pass it on, God would speak to the intermediary, and the intermediary would pass it on back to them. It's a long word, I try to say that many times, that fast. But there was this intermediary person, this middleman in between them and God. But everything changes at this crucifixion. Matthew 27, verse 51 says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The curtain that was dividing the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was from the outer courts, was actually torn in two signifying to all present, especially the priests, what has just happened. That we now have direct access to the Father. We pray directly to the Father. Because see, Jesus is talking about here uh, a, another aspect of how they pray in his name. It's not the first thing he's explained about when you pray in my name, it means this. If you look back through the Gospel of John, you'll see other instances of that. But in this one, he wants them to understand that he's not going to be their inter intermediary in their prayer lives. That in that day, you will ask in my name and I, do not ask you, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. We have direct access in our prayers to the Father. When they asked him, what, how do we pray? He modeled our Father who art in heaven. That we pray to the Father. We do not pray to Jesus to pass it on to the Father. We pray directly to the Father in Jesus' name. Do we get technical about it? We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet don't miss the fullness of what this means for what some churches teach today. You see, I know there's a variety of backgrounds in this room, but some churches teach that there are intermediaries. That we should pray to someone who will then, who is that middleman in between us and God and that will be passed on. If Jesus himself is saying right now that he is not an intermediary, who is? There's, there's no human being who's walked this earth and now, uh, and, and has died and now we pray to them to then pray to God. No. That makes absolutely no sense. If Jesus himself is not actually in that role as God, why in the world would we pray to a human who's walked this earth and died? We have direct access to the Father. Not only that, we are loved directly by the Father. Loved directly by the Father. He says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. He loves you because you have loved me, right? We have no reason to ever be loved by the Father. We merit no love, we merit no good at all for how we have sinned against God. And yet, for those of us who have repented and believed in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross, paying for our sins, we have been credited with his righteousness and perfection. And we are loved directly by God. 
We'll never understand the fullness of, of how we've entered into this family and this relationship. We just know that it's true. Jesus just talked about abiding in him in the previous chapter. He's about to pray for the people in the next chapter. And one of those verses in John 17, 21 says this, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, we have been adopted into the family of God in a way that we're never gonna fully comprehend. Yet we know it to be true. For those of us who have repented and believed, in Christ. Just like he says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. He first loved us and we get the opportunity to love him back because of what he did for us. We have overcome the closed curtain through Jesus. Third, overcoming is overcoming the common leadership. Overcoming the common leadership. Take a look at verses 29 through 32 again. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now, I don't know if this is the exact same disciples that were just muttering to themselves, what in the world is he talking about with all these little whiles in a while? I don't know if it's the exact same disciples, but obviously it's part of the same group. And after Jesus has responded to them in the passage we looked at last week, they were, what happened is they were muttering to themselves. They didn't mention it to Jesus. Jesus knew what they were talking about and answered their question. And so what we see now is the next time they actually speak in this conversation. And so the statement, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you, makes sense when you realize he just answered a question that they didn't ask. They're talking about in the back going, oh my goodness, what in the, I'm just lost. And he goes, oh yeah, you're lost? Well, here's how, here's how this works. And yet, their statement rings a little bit like the statement of Nicodemus in chapter three that we looked at in the, in the Gospel of John, in which Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, well, we know that you are from God because of these works that you've done. And why I say it's similar is because there's a, there's a level of kind of naivete playing going on here where uh, Jesus responds similarly to the disciples here as he did to Nicodemus. And Jesus doesn't say, well, I'm glad you finally get it. <clears throat> yeah, I just said it to you plainly. I'm glad you all finally joined the club. He doesn't say that. He says, oh, do you believe me now? Oh, you, oh, so you believe me now? Well, watch this. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Oh, you believe me now? Well, guess what? You're about to run away. You're about to run away to your own home. You're about to leave me, even though he can't truly be alone because the Father is with him. You see, the, the leadership within the church from the very beginning was a common Leadership, and I say common in the way of an average, unexceptional, you know, ordinary. The church has overcome the common leadership of the church. It's a good thing that the church is built on Christ and not on man. Because if the church was built on man, we wouldn't be here. We have no reason to be in this room right now. If our faith was in the followers of Christ and not in Christ, we would have every reason to not be in this place this morning. Because you're not at, you don't have to look very hard 
to find leaders in the church that have made some pretty terrible decisions that make you question whether or not they were believers. And they should face consequences for those poor choices, for sure. But we're in this place because of Jesus. The church has overcome the common leadership through Jesus. In fact, I came across a quote um, this week um, by by C.H. Dodd that I wanted to share with you. He says this, it is part of the character and genius of the church that its foundation members were discredited men. It owed its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them. And this they could never forget. You see, even in the Old Testament or the New Testament, what you find is stories of flawed men and women of God. You see the very disciples themselves who followed Jesus on this earth, arguing with each other, sinning themselves, being confused like children in his very ministry. And yet the church is here because the church is built on the truth and person of Jesus. It's built on that gospel and not on man alone. And no failing of any one of us as individuals negates the truth of Jesus. And I would also spin it in, just in, a, in a different light as well. From, a, from an apologetics perspective, I would argue that the honest portrayals add credibility to the stories. The honest portrayals add to the credibility of the stories. You see, if this Bible was written by men to serve their own needs, to give them power and wealth, they did a terrible job. Would you include a story like this about yourself muttering about something that later on seems so simple and you were just like, yeah, man, I missed that one. No. You would expect what's written in other world religions in which the leaders look better than everybody else and look larger than life and any kind of misstep or sin in their lives is covered up and washed over and you're not allowed to talk about that one. You see, the realness of the people in scripture lends credence to the trustworthiness of the messages themselves. Because if it was a, if it was a religion, if it was religious writings written for the, for the good of the men writing it and they just made it all up, it would read very different. I don't think I have to go on a, on a very big limb to say that men writing for their own good are not gonna write about sacrificing for their wives. They're not going to write about servant leadership. They're not going to include statements of Jesus saying this is how leadership in the world looks where one man lords it over the rest, but I say flip it over and wash each other's feet and serve one another. That is a terrible plan at writing religious writings for your purposes because it's true. So the church overcomes the common leadership through Jesus Because it's built on Christ. And we have access to the truth here. The last one. Overcoming the coming tribulation. Overcoming the coming tribulation. 
Verse 33 says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He doesn't say, work hard and you're gonna overcome the enemy. You're gonna overcome the world. No, he says you're gonna walk through battles, but the war has already been won. That while you're in the midst of your tribulation right now, look beyond that. Look to what everything is heading towards. And that this lifetime you have on earth is just a blip in the timeline of eternity that we have in front of us. And take heart because I have overcome the world. The war wages on to an inevitable conclusion even though the world does not want to admit that. (laughs) In the eyes of the world, in the eyes of many in the world, they're winning some battles over the church right now. They're winning some culture battles. They're winning some battles when they get to point to leaders falling on their face. They look around, they say, we're gonna win this war because they're completely blind to the fact that it's already been finished. And they don't see this world for what it really is, this sinful, judged, broken world that we live in. They don't get it, but we get to see it for what it really is. And while we should be brokenhearted and saddened by sinfulness and suffering in this world, the one thing we should never be is surprised. why Jesus is telling his disciples what they're about to face because he doesn't want them to be surprised. He wants them to have peace in him. He says, <laughs> he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. I want you to know what's coming so when that happens, you're not surprised and you can have peace in me because you know how it's all working together. We should not be surprised. You know, when I read this verse, what comes to mind is like, um, you know, like a stereotypical action image where like you have this, uh, this hero just kind of walking and just strutting his way and the world like behind him is just like exploding, right? Everything's, everything's just, go, just coming apart, but he, he doesn't care, right? No, he's, he's cool, he's, he's, he's all good. Why? Because it's a movie, right? I mean, anybody else would be going, what in the world's going on behind me, right? But that's the picture that we have, I think, today in our world. We are walking through a world that is broken and corrupted and only getting worse. And as we see this around us, we shouldn't be surprised at what's coming our way because we know that mankind is inherently sinful and chooses sin. And that we are going to go through tribulation and tough times because we are living for him and they hated him and they're gonna hate us. And y'all, they're gonna come after us more and more and more as the future transpires. But take heart, for he has overcome the world. We can have peace during the battle. We can have peace during the battle. You see, we should be walking through that exploding world with a look on our face like, yeah, I see it. I see it. So what? To an extent. You see, the, the, the hope, the joy, 
the peace in our lives is supposed to shine through to other people. When things happen and the rest of the world is shocked, our hope and our peace and our joy should look to them like craziness because we're not responding in the same way because we know that he has overcome the world. That when they're fighting against us and they're, and they're looking and, and they don't understand why the look on our face is not that our battle has been lost or that the war is something that we are losing. They're looking on our face and we're looking back at them going, oh, I wish you only knew. They're trying to celebrate in their fight against us and they're trying to say, we've got you, we've got you, we've got you. And we're not looking back at them like they've got us. We're looking back at them going, why won't you just open your eyes? And we look back with love and we look back with hope and we look back with joy and with peace that only comes through Jesus. Take heart for I have overcome the world. We don't get removed from the world. We don't get to avoid tribulation and just and get promised some happy ending with nothing but happiness and safe spaces and everything's cool. We walk through the battles as the army of the Lord, knowing full well that we might fall, but he has already won.